G'day folks, Western Red here with something a little bit different this time. Now, I assume that at least some of you all are like me, since you're listening to this show. Of course, we love country music, traditional country music, even further than that. But if you are a little bit like me, you are drawn to the stuff that hasn't been thrashed on the radio. Some stuff a little more obscure, and maybe if you're really like me, you just love a sensationally researched book or publication on your favourite country artist, maybe one you didn't know existed, with great pics of the labels, promo pics or further memorabilia, and of course a complete as possible discography with session info as well. Much like you might find in a Bear Family box set, for example. Well, this week I had the chance to chat with a man who does that for a living, along with many other things. Scott B. Bomar is a music historian and author whose 2019 10-CD box set, The Bakersfield Sound, was critically acclaimed, and for dang good reason, and comes with a cavernous and indispensable 224-page hardcover book on everything contained on the CDs and way more. It is an absolute must for anybody remotely interested in country music. And Scott B. Bomar is now back as part of a new release that he's been working on, scheduled for release on January 20th of 2023. It's called I Can Almost See Houston, The Complete Howdy Glen, coming out on Omnivore Records, in which we will be featuring here on the show in a little bit. But before I put the audio episode out into the world and really get stuck into the story of Howdy Glen, the black country music singing fireman from Inglewood, California, Scott B. Bomar was nice enough to let me pick his brain about everything to do with this magnificent project, a subject in a conversation that I found fascinating. Here it is, unedited, and I hope that you find some interesting listening contained in the next hour's worth of glorious country music nerdity. Take a listen. Hey, it's Western Red with you on a very special edition of If That Ain't Country. Coming out on January 20th is a brand new collection of uh, very hard to find music. It's called I Can Almost See Houston, The Complete Howdy Glen. It's coming out on Omnivore Records, a very well-known reissue label. And tell you what, we're going to be doing an audio episode on that in just a little bit. But uh, I have one of the driving forces behind this project coming to life on the phone uh, today. And Scott B. Bomar, appreciate you making the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, I mean, you've been extremely generous uh, in in helping me along on this one, <laughs> despite my disorganizational abilities. But uh, you've got uh, you've got a lot of uh, projects that I'm uh, very very much in awe of. Uh, to your name, you're a music historian and an author, and you have uh, a very long list of accolades. Just go ahead and and tell people about yourself to start with, please, mate. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a writer and, and researcher and everything I do is, is pretty music related. Um, so I, I co-wrote Wanda Jackson's autobiography with her. Um, I, I wrote a book called Southbound. That's a history of Southern rock. Uh, my most recent project is I collaborated with, uh, Chris Hillman and Roger McGuinn and David Crosby on a book about uh, the birds, um, of which they were obviously, they're the three surviving founding members right. of the band. Um, so, uh, you know, just a lot of a lot of book stuff. And then I do a lot of reissue type things. Probably one of the ones uh, that's one of my uh, favorites is I did a, a 10 CD box set for Bear Family Records called The Bakersfield Sound. Um, and you know, Bakersfield and West coast country music is, uh, really special to me. I grew up in Nashville, but I've lived in Los Angeles for, uh, 22 years. And I just, I guess maybe having grown up in Nashville where, you know, the, the history of country music is very Nashville centric and, and then moving to the West coast, uh, and my eyes kind of being opened and going, wow, there's way more history of country music out here than than people realize so um that's that's kind of become a, a specialty for me but yeah basically if it's if it's good uh music then i'm interested in it well <laughs> i mean you mentioned that bakersfield box you can't go past uh, scott b bomar and not know about the bakersfield box because it is absolutely the authority 
Uh, it's extraordinary to listen to. Uh, some of the, some of the stuff you dug up for that project is um, it may never have seen the light of day in any reissue package if not for your efforts. So, from all the uh, the fans of the Bakersfield sound and every offshoot possible, we thank you very much for that project. It was uh, <laughs> it's one heck of a piece, and uh, from from thank a, you. from a perspective of of uh, somebody who likes uh, the the well known stuff as well as the obscure. Wow, I was I was very impressed. Now the oh, story. Yeah, oh man, I tell you, the story of Howdy Glenn is uh, is one that not a lot of folks uh, have heard of. How did his story come to pique your interest? Well, it's funny. It actually ties into the Bakersfield Sound uh, research that I was doing and continue to do. I'm I'm currently writing a book on the history of the Bakersfield Sound, um, but. Uh, years ago, um, there was a musician in Bakersfield who was one of the few mus- musicians who had held on to photographs and letters and things that a historian like me would love to go through. You know, a lot of musicians kind of lose that stuff along the way. Um, but this guy had a big trunk and was full of, of different things that he had uh, collected and, you know, photo albums and that kind of thing. And he passed away. Um, and his, uh, daughter-in-law was letting me basically just go through this trunk uh, of things. And I found an eight by 10, um, glossy photo of this guy, Howdy Glenn. And I'd never heard of him. And he was a black country singer in the seventies. I could tell by what he was wearing in the photo. It was like kind of a nudie suit, but it had a, a definitely seventies uh, collar going on. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I knew it was the seventies. I knew that it was a black country performer and there was something else on there that said something country music on there. And um, I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, there weren't uh, a lot of black country artists in the seventies and um, I j- uh, that wasn't what I was looking for at the time, so I just kind of set it aside. Um, and uh, over the years, I kind of kept coming back to that, thinking, you know, who's that? Uh, who's that Howdy Glenn guy? I just hadn't really ever read much about him. Um, and as I I dug into it a little bit, I realized, wow, okay, this guy was nominated for the Top New Male Vocalist Award by the Academy of Country Music in 1977. Um, and you know, the other nominees were Vern Gosden, Mel McDaniel and Eddie rabbit. So, if you don't, uh, mind, yeah. you know, we've, we've heard of these other guys. Uh, why have we not heard of, of Howdy Glenn? He recorded for Warner brothers. Um, he had two, uh, singles that, uh, charted, they weren't hits, but they were low charters on the national chart in billboard. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, gosh, I, this guy just seems to have kind of fallen off the face of the earth. Um, and I would think about him from time to time and, and do a little research. And, you know, at some point I really got into, uh, looking into trying to figure out the the story, figure out who he was and, and what he was all about. And, and I discovered that he was a firefighter in Inglewood, California, which is where I live, uh, Inglewood, California. Um, and I thought, wow, okay, that's a funny coincidence. And, I just went online trying to find anything I could find about him. And actually, that's when I kind of ran into you online because I discovered that you'd been doing some digging and and trying to find out about this guy somewhere along the way. And uh, gosh, it's probably been a year or more since you and I first connected on the phone, just kind of comparing notes like, hey, we both are interested in this guy. Do you know anything else about him? And I remember us having that that talk and just right. trying to, to sort of go like, what are the scraps of, of clues that we have between us? Um, but I was ultimately able to connect with his daughter who lives in Detroit and his, um, lifelong, basically wife. They were never technically married, but they were lifelong, you know, multi-decade partners. And, um, and I, I got in touch with her and between the two of them, I was able to really start kind of filling in, uh, some more of the gaps and and I found Ed Berkey who uh, played guitar um, with Howdy Glenn for a number of years and you know, I just started you know one person would kind of lead to another and I began to, to put the story together until I had a pretty good sense of like okay here's here's Howdy Glenn and, and who he was and what his career was about um, and you know from there I just sort of had a passion of like we got to get this this music's never been released digitally and people don't know his story and you know let's try to start getting that story out there 
Well, yes, sir. I mean, and, and you touched on uh, us getting connected. I'm just going to backtrack very slightly and, uh, and give a big old shout out to uh, Mike Trutenich, who is a, a listener to the If That Ain't Country podcast. He lives out there in California. Uh, I'm trying to rack my brains. I believe it was about two or maybe three years ago he had emailed me, uh, you know, love the show. Awesome. Thanks for the kind words, Mike. And he goes, well, you know, there's this there's this fella. Uh, I, I remember hearing back on the radio back in the 70s or, or something to that effect. His name was Howdy Glenn. He's a black firefighter from Inglewood. That's all the information he gave me. Maybe you can do an episode on him. And I didn't know anything because there's no information out there except what's going to be on this uh this wonderful, uh, complete Howdy Glenn uh, CD when it comes out here in just a little bit. Uh, and so I looked at it. Uh, I, I managed to f- find a copy of, uh, of his one LP, I Can Almost See Houston from here, uh, online. Yeah. It actually had uh, ended. I had to <laughs> message the seller on eBay and say, hey, can you relist this? <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I bought the copy and, uh, and, and tracked down a little bit about him. I, I think I did manage to find... Uh, some of his relatives, perhaps a, a daughter or a son or something like that on, on Facebook and um, the brother of, of uh, one of the songwriters he liked to uh, to cut songs on, uh, Chuck Willis, who's now passed on, I believe. Um, right. Ray Willis being one of his big um, big draws for that LP amongst other singles. And then I think I, I Googled it and uh, and on Facebook I found you were, were posting about it or something to that effect and, and that's yeah. how we got connected. It's, it's a fascinating story. How do you get started on a project like this? Well, you know, the first thing is, uh, is there going to be somebody who wants to put this out? Um, that's <laughs> so, a good question. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, that's always kind of the, the starting point. So... Um, I had reached out to my friend Cheryl Pulvalski, who uh, owns Omnivore Recordings, and um, kind of pitched her on this, and she just thought the same thing that we thought of, wow, that's fascinating, and um, she said, you know, let me look into it a little bit, and we got to figure out, you know, who owns these recordings, and of course, Warner Brothers um, owned uh, the recordings to... Uh, you know, for, for a lot of his stuff. Um, the LP you mentioned, uh, I Can Almost See Houston, was a an independent release uh, mm-hmm. that he did. And then his other recordings were all on Warner Brothers. Um, so, you know, we had to go through the whole thing of would Warner Brothers allow us to, to license these recordings to put out because we want this to be his complete recordings. We, we you know, we need the Warner Brothers stuff. Um, and so, uh, oddly enough, in the, the 90s, the Country Music Hall of Fame put out a box set that was, I think, a three-disc compilation um, highlighting black contributions to country music. And um, it was put out in coordination with Warner Brothers Records. And there's no Howdy Glenn on it. And How does that you know, happen? I just think no one, like, he just somehow got forgotten. It's like, I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a malicious thing of, oh, we're going to exclude this guy. But I think by the time they were compiling this thing, which, you know, really was only like a little more than 20 years after, you know, he, or less, it was less than 20 years after he left Warner Brothers. Uh, you know, I think that they just, no one knew about him anymore. Like it just somehow he just kind of got off the radar. Um, and so anyway, Warner Brothers did allow us to license the um, recordings. And so the CD uh, that uh, comes out on January 20th is called I Can Almost See Houston, The Complete Howdy Glenn, and it has um, 23 tracks, everything that he recorded, including some alternate takes. And then we also have a digital album, which Warner Brothers would not license his recordings for the digital release, but the digital album is the uh, the original LP, I Can Almost See Houston, which is his kind of independent recordings, and then there's a couple of additional bonus tracks there, independent recordings that were not on the um, original LP uh, issue, but none of the stuff has ever been issued digitally. So I'm I'm partial to the CD version because it's got all the tracks, and also I wrote uh, liner notes. They told me to write about 1,500 words, and I wrote about 10,000. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, it's it's got some uh, some heavy reading in there too. So I, I I encourage folks to to get the CD version, but if if uh, they can't, then the the digital version is at least a nice sampling of 
Howdy Glenn's uh, work and, and his, all of his independent recordings. I think you will find a, uh, a ready-made audience uh, for, for the, those liner notes you mentioned. And it, it is a shame that you had to cut them down just a little bit to, to fit the, the booklet. Very, very appealing, um, the, the presentation. I mean, I'm guessing that uh, some of those photos came from uh, maybe your own personal collection that you picked up from that musician. Um, how did how did you come to track down the those uh, labels that were the pictures on the forty fives? Yeah, so that was just me kind of collecting, um, you know, collecting the the singles like over the years that I was sort of interested in trying to find out more about Howdy Glenn. If I ever came across, uh, you know, one of his singles that was for sale, I would snag it, and usually they weren't very expensive because again like no one really knew who this guy was these weren't like crazy collectible or anything like that so i've picked up most of the singles that he released and every time i bought one it was like under 10 bucks um you know but it took me a few years because there's just there's not that much out there you know and um the uh the i can almost see houston lp that that you mentioned that you have i mean that's not a lot of them out there you don't see them Mm -hmm. for sale and in fact um, there are no existing master tapes uh, for us to draw from. So um, fortunately, I had a sealed copy of the LP, and so we sourced what's on the CD from this unplayed vinyl. Um, and Michael Graves, who's an incredible um, Grammy-winning uh, restoration artist, I'll call him, <laughs> uh, is he, he, can, he can take anything, uh, any recorded form, and make it sound like it was recorded yesterday he's he's just amazing and so working with this virgin vinyl that had never been played um he created masters for us that uh sound probably better than it would have sounded had we even found the original tapes i mean he's he's uh, incredible so um so the the sound quality in terms of the what we're bringing to folks letting them hear howdy glenn probably a lot of people for the first time they're going to hear it, you know, in, in the best possible sound quality. Oh, I mean, I can tell that a lot of effort has been putting putting into restoring these tracks. I remember you mentioned that sealed LP. Um, did it, was it like flat or was it like slightly warped? Like somehow the shrink wrap can somehow, you know, sometimes over time make them right. a little less than, uh, than flat. But, you know, you've got fingers crossed that if that is the case, it don't affect the sound quality. Yeah, if it if it was warped at all, I couldn't tell by from to the naked eye. Now Michael would definitely know, and if he if it was warped, he has his uh, secret voodoo magic ways of, <laughs> of getting it all straightened out. So wh- whatever he did, uh, I, I hope that I gave him the best uh, you know possible source. But either way, he he came out with with something that sounds fabulous. <laughs> well, he did a magnificent job, and I mean. How did you come by these 45s and, and this particular LP? Are we talking eBay, Discogs, Antique Malls, yeah. Flea Markets? Do they even have them in California? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. There's tons of that stuff. But uh, no, I didn't buy any of them from flea markets or anything like that. They were all acquired <laughs> online. Yeah, Discogs, eBay. Nice. You know, if I if I came across one. So um, I, I don't have the – while I would love to be a crate digger, I don't have the, the patience – uh, <laughs> to to go out, you know, week after week, and and dive in and find the gems. Uh, so I let somebody else find them, and then I buy them online. <laughs> well, that that is perfect. That perfectly okay. I, truth be told, I do most of my crate digging with two kids from my chair these days. It's just the way it goes <laughs> right. sometimes in our situation. But uh, so you mentioned you need to suss out the viability of a project like this, and you've got Omnivore on board. Um, then you need to go you know get some people to talk to i'm assuming you know there's there's not a lot of printed uh, information out there about him and with somebody like howdy glenn um by the time you know you, the interest has started on your end he's already passed on in in 2012 if i'm not mistaken uh right. and a lot of the people that he played with and was around uh have passed on as well um yeah. i mean how many dead ends did you hit before you finally hit a lead that went somewhere um quite a few and you know honestly it wasn't like it wasn't like there was a bunch of people that went like no i've never heard of them there was there's still guys around in in southern california who were playing you know music in the 70s obviously you know when when howdy was playing but everybody that i almost everybody that i spoke to they go yeah i remember him and you know i'd say what what can you tell me about him they go he's a really nice guy (laughs) and 
you're like, oh, okay, and and yeah, not the, very helpful. they don't see, <laughs> they don't seem to know, didn't seem to know much more. Um, now I will say that uh, the Academy of Country Music really, uh, he was on the board at one point. Really? And, yeah, wow. and he was a, very involved in the Academy of Country Music, and they were very much. Um, Bill and Fran Boyd, who were big movers and shakers in the Academy back in the 70s, they were huge supporters of Howdy and proponents of his. So he got a good bit of coverage in the Academy of Country Music uh, newsletters back Mm -hmm. in the 70s. And fortunately, years ago, I happened to have photocopied the entire run of Academy of Country Music newsletters from like the 60s when it started until the 80s when they quit doing it. Now, there's a historian. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you know I've had these like three or four binders worth of uh, of photocopied Academy of Country Music monthly newsletters from you know from several for several years, That's a decade incredible. and a half's worth. And uh, so I went out in my garage, dusted those off, flipped through them, and just went page by page looking for mentions of Howdy, um, and you know got some good information there. And then uh, Ed Berkey, uh, who played guitar with Howdy, um, was a good um, source, and then um, there were some other guys um, who had uh, had played on some of his sessions and stuff who I then got connected with. Um, so I started to be able to kind of put it together. It was like nobody, and then Geraldine, who was his, his common-law wife, she was able to fill in a lot of gaps about him personally um, and who he was as a person and tell me more about his work on the fighter department and that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of the Getting the info about the music, um, yeah, it was tricky. Oh, and I will say, Howdy himself had um, kept a scrapbook. And it's this huge, oversized scrapbook. And in the liner notes, like when you first pull the liner notes out, there's uh, a thing that says Gospel Country, Howdy Glen, Fire Records. And it's like this homemade-looking thing. That's actually the front of uh, his personal scrapbook. And he had kept some articles and things. I don't think any journalists in national publications ever wrote about him, but these kind of regional country music, um, you know, newsletters and, and like sort of self-produced country music fanzines and stuff back in the day would interview him or write about him. And he had saved uh, some of that stuff. So even though he died in 2012, his family still had that. So that wound up being a good source because, oh, you know, see. I would have never found some of these like small little publications, you know, where he had fortunately kept some of the coverage about him. So, so yeah, it was just like, it was a slow building process of, you know, I snag a factoid, snag an article, snag a photo, get this little thing here and there over several years. And so finally it was like, okay, I think I know enough about this guy to sort of put forth his story, you know, insofar as I know it and understand it. Now there, there might be somebody who, sees this and becomes aware aware of it and and has more information and and you know more source material which i always welcome you know i always think with these kind of projects like i'm not positing myself as the expert who knows everything um you know sometimes i see my role as like hey i'm the guy that wants to get this conversation started so here's everything i know and there might be other historians or other fans out there who know more who will then be able to add um, to the narrative, and we'll learn more about Howdy Glenn. So that's the kind of thing that I hope happens. Well, that's an inc- incredibly humble uh, perspective to take into something like this. Um, and I feel, I mean, do you do you think there's a possibility that there might be more um, undiscovered uh, recorded material on Howdy, or or is this would, most likely everything he ever did? I mean, I think it's everything he ever did. I would be surprised if anything else came forward, but, you know, you never know. There could be some demos or something out there. In terms of what was released, I feel pretty confident that this is everything. Um, but you, you just never know what could be out there that, uh, you know, you know I, I just always like to never say never. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I feel pretty confident that, that this is about all the Howdy Glenn that, that was ever released. Well, I feel like that's a pretty, a, a pretty good, uh, a fair statement. I mean, even if somebody does hear this um, wonderful omnivore uh, release and think, okay, I can add to this. I don't really know what they're going to add because you've, you've covered his, his story in such detail. 
um, you know, little bit here and there. I don't, I don't know what else people can do with that really, except maybe just acknowledge it. I mean, this is a this is a comprehensive uh, rundown of Howdy's career, and you've even done a pretty good job right at the beginning of your of, of your line of notes of of uh, incorporating Howdy Glenn's music and his story into the the greater California. Uh, country music uh, scene, the story. Um, just go ahead and, and tell people exactly how he, how you think he fits his story fits into the greater you know country and California country uh, narrative. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that like let's forget whether or not setting aside the question of either what, whether or not somebody happens to like Howdy Glenn's music or not. And for the record, he was a, a very good singer, right? Um, and his his he was a very talented guy. Um, but so I'm not dissing his, his music. I think he was uh, a very talented guy, but setting aside even any kind of personal taste to me, the fact that you have a, a black country singer who was nominated for an ACM award, um, in the seventies, uh, and had two charting billboard singles. That's already significant because that was such a rare, uh, thing at that time, right? And you know, everybody always points to to Charlie Pride, um, but you had Charlie Pride, Linda Martell, Otis Williams, Stoney Edwards, Ob McClinton. That's six black country artists who had uh, charted on the Billboard charts with um, you know with singles uh, prior to to Howdy Glenn. Um, so when you figure there's only a half dozen black country artists and I'm excluding, I know in the very early days of the charts before they really got things categorized in the way that they later would, there were black artists, um, who charted in what we now know as the country charts, but I'm talking about people like Nat King Cole and Ella Fitzgerald and folks that no one would consider country artists no. by today's mm-hmm. standards. But, you know, in terms of truly country artists who people would recognize as country, you're talking about a half dozen people who did it um, prior to Howdy Glenn. And Stoney Edwards uh, was the only one who did it from the West Coast prior to Howdy Glenn. So you have to recognize him even before you look at his um, his actual music, just in the significance of what he represents and the way that, you know, country music has been so regarded in the in popular thinking as music for white people um you know that r&b is black music country is white music now mm-hmm. you know in in the academic world amongst people who really study this stuff that has that that kind of trope has been um significantly challenged and rightfully so debunked yeah. um, but you know, in in popular thinking, I still think a lot of people who aren't necessarily really into the music, um, that's still kind of the popular thinking. That's just kind of the assumption, and it surprises people to go, "Oh, a, a person of color in in country music." It's become increasingly common today, and that's great. I think the the more diverse of a genre country music can be, that's a, a good thing. Um, but the fact that it is opening up more, the fact that it is, we are making more room for these other stories, means it's that much more important to go back into the history of the genre and and look and say, look at these contributors who helped pave the way for that. That maybe we've overlooked, you know, maybe we haven't really given them their due, and they need uh, that second spotlight. Like, let's let's look back, let's look into this history and, and reconsider and reevaluate some of these folks' contributions. And then, you know, on top of that, the fact that Howdy happens to be a really good singer uh, right. is just, with, is, is great. With some success. I mean, that, that list of names that he was up against at the ACMs that one year uh, for new artists, Vern Gosden, Mel McDaniel, Eddie Rabbit, I mean, those guys went on to become country legends. I mean, we play them all the time on, on yeah. that little radio station here in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And yet, I mean, and, and to, to your point, um, you know, a lot of folks still regard this as, as white people's music. I mean, by and large, it was mostly white people making the music. And my own dad, when I was growing up, you know, we used to call it the, the white man's blues. But right. as I got into it, you know, over the last sort of 10 years of doing this show, I've become aware and really, really big fans of folks like, Stoney Edwards, as you mentioned, O.B. McClinton. I remember I found a, an LP on him and was very excited. Otis Williams, um, 
all these people. I have some uh, 45 downstairs on, on Linda Martell, which I'm just still getting into. She was kind of country soulish, um, and, and traditional country is what I do. But, uh, you know, th- those folks in Big Al Downing, a little later on down the piece, they made yeah. good country music, as good as anybody. So, you know, you yeah. put you put skin color out, out the door, and we're talking about uh, quality contributions to, to, a, to a music that needs to be recognized. Yeah, and I think Big Al Downing is is more has been more recognized, obviously more so than Howdy Glenn, but not as much. You know, he didn't have the kind of success that you know, say Charlie Pride did. Right. Um, but what's interesting is that when Howdy Glenn's record deal kind of came to an end with Warner Brothers, um, that Big Al Downing was kind of moving up the charts and had his first top twenty single with Warner Brothers, the same label. And you know, it, it just sort of makes you think you know, at that time was the label going, well, did they have a you know, quota? Let's yeah. Let's stick with the, let's stick with the one black kind of, since it's unusual to have a black country artist, let's stick with the one black country artist that actually is showing more chart promise. And, and maybe, um, Howdy Glenn might've fallen victim to that in, in a way that, um, you know, now I think hopefully labels wouldn't think, Oh, there's only room for one black country artist. We, you know, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, who's good yeah well <laughs> you know, that's we don't need exactly to, right. we don't need to have a maximum or a minimum um so yeah i think there's a um a chance that 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 could have played into things you know it's a complicated story and i think you know there's a, a huge racial component to howdy's story and maybe why he's been a bit forgotten but there's other factors too that are that are complex and you know why it never happened for him uh, i don't think can be blamed on race alone um, but it's certainly a factor. Well, you, it's funny you mentioned that because he, I mean, he did get airplay in uh, in other parts of the country. I, I noticed in your liner notes you mentioned him or Geraldine mentioned to you that he went down to, to Texas at least once. Um, didn't have a whole lot of trouble uh, with, with racism, um, you know, maybe maybe here and there, but nothing that you noted particularly in your liner notes why do you think that was in in his case based on what you've come to know about him well i think that he was aware that those kind of issues could arise now he grew up in detroit and he moved to los angeles when he was in his late teens right after high school and so he never lived in the south um but certainly racial tensions were not limited to the South. Mm. Uh, you know, the South kind of is, you know, gets a lot of the focus because that's where a lot of the civil rights movement stuff happened. But yeah, there was certainly racial tensions throughout the country. Um, but, you know, he was aware of that. He was a firefighter on a primarily white, um, you know, fire department. And uh, he would go out to the country bars with these other firefighters or whatever. He was aware of the racial component but he also was determined to not let that deter him. And so, you know, Geraldine would talk about, oh, somebody might make a comment here or there, but it would be handled quickly. Um, And I think that he, as an entertainer, knew how to just basically go up on the stage and be like, all right, if you're going to, if you're going to look down on me for being a black country singer, then I'm going to go up there and give the best country show you've ever seen. You know, uh, and I think that he just kind of relied on his talent and he was the kind of singer that um, really knew how to do some like great vocal tricks and that type of thing in a live show. He was a, he was a, an entertainer in the true sense of the word. Like he wanted to capture the audience and, you know, grab a hold of them and give them the best show they'd ever seen. So I think that's how he sort of combated some of the more casual racism and he earned respect, you know, in those circles. And so people didn't really, um, there wasn't a lot of prejudice that he encountered by Geraldine's account and by some of the other musicians account, um, other than very rarely in, in the clubs. Um, and I think more of the, I think maybe where more of the resistance came from for him, uh, was more, uh, in kind of the structural systems of the business, the corporate of, level, you know, the corporate level, exactly right. So uh, it, it seems he didn't fa- that the racism he faced was very much more institutional than it was casual, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, but I think it, it was really his his talent that that sort of shut people up if they wanted to make. <laughs> 
you know, smart comments or whatever in some club. As soon Whoa. as he started singing, it was like, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. he's got a very full-throated delivery, as you noted in your liner notes. Uh, he really yeah. gets around those lyrics in a way that I've that I can't remember having heard any singer do is once you hear Howdy Glenn, you know, it's Howdy Glenn and, and you, you won't forget yeah. that. I mean, and not to mention, I mean, he's already an underdog quote unquote from, from having been a black country singer, but he's also a firefighter moonlighting as, as a right. country singer. I mean, the, the, the good guy fireman, you know, going out to selflessly save other people and, you know, bring home a meager paycheck for all the danger he puts him in. Do you think that adds to his appeal, his story? Well, certainly. I mean, he was a likable guy. Everyone described him as very friendly, um, very upbeat, very positive. Um, you know, he's this big strong firefighter guy everybody loves a firefighter i mean like yep. that's the that's like the one thing that all americans agree on is we all think firefighters are great ain't that the know? truth like, ain't that the they're, truth they're, they're they're firefighters are heroes he was a good looking guy like he just he was just a likable presence in every respect when you consider good looks talent great personality and having this job that uh makes somebody kind of a default hero you know, he's he's kind of got it all in that regard. Yeah, I mean, you've nailed it. Uh, I that's kind of the the in that got me. I mean, yeah, black country singer. That's something that's uh, unusual in in uh, the common conception. But when I found out he's a firefighter, that made me want to go digging more because that just adds an extra level of intrigue, which you just don't get from from your average country singer looking to make it up the charts. There. Yeah, and you know what's interesting to me is that. Um, that when Warner Brothers signed him uh, and they they put out like the initial uh, ads in the trade magazines like Billboard and Cashbox and everything, um, they positioned him as the singing fireman. That was what they, they called him. So they had these ads that were like announcing Howdy Glenn, the singing fireman, and there's a picture of him in his full-on like fire uniform holding an axe, you know, and, uh, and then they had a tagline on there that said, Warner Country is smoking. Oh, so they gosh. they really were like they were hooked on to the to the uh firefighter angle for sure just like you and me i I don't know you know where they got i don't the the singing sheriff of course was theron young the singing fisherman was uh johnny horton the singing brakeman was right. jimmy rogers i didn't think yeah. about that but this is something that's been going on quite a while now yeah yeah there's a there's a grand tradition in country music of the singing uh insert occupation here yeah that's that's very <laughs> true mate um you talked about you you'd managed to track down three individuals in particular that was super helpful howdy's daughter uh geraldine his common law wife and ed berkey uh guitarist for a long time with with howdy can you just tell us how how do you go about finding these people i mean it's not just as easy as looking at a phone book anymore no, it's not. Uh, some some uh, diligence, patience, and uh, light internet stalking. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'll, I'm going to leave it at that. Um, that's a, that's a that's a good summary. Um, we actually just uh, did an episode a uh, couple of weeks ago on uh, on Gene Davis, um, who was the uh, the house act or the the band leader at, at the uh, Palomino Club from about fifty eight through yeah. sixty six, um, I did notice that um, that Howdy was uh, was a pretty regular presence at the Palomino for the talent shows that they had run in there. Just go ahead and tell us about that if you could. Yeah, you know, a lot of these clubs back in those days would have these talent nights, which was essentially like anybody could get up and and perform, but they would they were competitions, so. Um, the people who weren't any good kind of got weeded out, uh, you know, pretty quickly. And Howdy went and entered, uh, and that was actually how he started. He, when he, he first sang publicly, um, was at a country bar here in Inglewood, and he went out with his buddies, and they were having a talent competition that night. And his buddies just kind of goaded him into like, hey, you should get up there and do it. So he did, and he sang Old Dog's Children and Watermelon Wine by Tom T. Hall. And that kind of became his go-to um, uh, song that he would use for these competitions. So he would make the rounds of all the Southern California clubs that had talent nights and competitions and kind of work his way up the ranks because he was a good singer. So he would win and then he'd get to come back the next week to compete in the finals or semifinals or whatever they had. And you know, that's kind of a thing that I guess has died out over the years. You don't really have that, that kind of culture of uh, the talent contest in the in the country bars anymore but back then that was the way to kind of get in i i think like 
you know, I think they still do that like in the comedy world, you know, they'll have open mic night at a comedy club and then that might be somebody's first opportunity to get on stage and that's their in. And if they're good, then they might get noticed and they get to go to the next one, you know? Um, and that was, that was his, those were the building blocks of his early career. That's how he got in front of audiences. That's how he practiced being an entertainer. And, you know, the fact that he kept winning these meant that he kept getting to go on to, you know, to this one and, and that one and, and get more exposure. Um, and then there was a whole series uh, at the um, Palomino Club. It was the, the Truckmaster School of Trucking uh, did this uh, um, contest in coordination with KLAC, which is a country, was a country radio station here in, in L.A. This is back in like 74. Um, and they were sponsoring this talent contest with the promise that, you know, whoever won would get to perform at the big truckers jamboree at the Hollywood Palladium and uh, how he won. So he got to go perform at the Palladium on the bill with Freddie Hart and Red Simpson and Dave Dudley. And, you know, that was uh, a big night for him because um, it was huge exposure. And so it was really the, the talent competitions uh, that allowed him to, to kind of build his local reputation. Yeah, quote best night of my life. Uh, I think yeah. I think he had uh, told somebody back back in the seventies for that uh, for that show at the Palladium, uh, sponsored I believe by KLAC, home of uh, the Interstate Trucking Show. Larry Scott, big big fan, yep. right here in, in my boots. But uh, I tell you what, he um, he his story is just is so appealing. Um, I'm really happy to see uh, everything everything coming to light here. You've done a, a fantastic job. On, on putting this together. Um, this might be putting you in a bit of a tough spot, but do you have a favorite track from, from what all you've unearthed? You know, um, I do. I have a couple of favorites. I actually really like I Can Almost See Houston, which was his first single and then obviously became the title track for his LP. And that's one of the, that's the song that is the, you know, the title for this whole compilation. Um, there is a like this really high soprano background vocal on it that has not aged well. Um, <laughs> I wish I could go into the original tapes and take off the background vocal. But other than that, I think it's a fantastic uh, recording, and that's one of my favorites. Um, another one is uh, a song called Tucson, which he recorded, I think, at his final Warner Brothers session, and they never released it. Um, and I don't know why. I think it's probably one of his, his better recordings. Um, and uh, we have the version on the CD that was what was intended to be, um, you know, the the release that got shelved. And then there's an alternate version that has strings on it, which is interesting. The version with strings was not the one that was considered the final master that they were going to release. Somebody decided to take off the strings, um, which, you know, sometimes some of those country records in that era, too many strings and too much production kind of date them a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's kind of fun to, to hear both versions and, you know, hear what they were kind of trying to decide between. But <laughs> they never decided, I guess, and neither got released. But Tucson, I think, is the the uh, the hidden gem. Um, and, uh, yeah, and there's, you know, I would say that, that there's a couple clunkers uh, on this Certainly. if you take them all, you know, together. But I think overall the quality is is really good and and um you know it speaks for itself well that's the sort of thing that you know the people that like me and and you who, who enjoy complete uh discography releases uh appreciate you know there's always going to be clunkers you can't have like 100 percent you know home runs every time you go into a studio um right but that you know that's the sort of thing that we as as country music uh fans of uh of the obscure stuff tend to appreciate so you know it's it's good to have them on there regardless um i will ask very quickly were you able to establish um number one um what it was that howdy liked so much about about the, the the writing of Ray Willis, about, I mean, at least almost half, I'd say, of the songs on uh, I Can Almost See Houston From Here were written by Ray Willis. Yeah, I think um, Howdy was smart to try to find somebody who was basically a good songwriter that could supply him with original material because, you know, if you weren't already a big star on the West Coast or if you weren't kind of in the Nashville system, how are you going to get the best songs you know the the people who are writing new songs are trying to get those songs recorded by the big artists in nashville and ray willis was really like um 
he was kind of coming up at that time and and he was never somebody who you know made it big as as a songwriter or anything like that um you know he was he was regionally uh pretty successful but um he had like a top 20 hit on the on the national charts um about the time that that how he came across i can almost see houston so his career was kind of getting looking promising looking like it might sort of get off the ground so i think how do latch and this is pure speculation i found no like evidence of this but i would suspect that they thought hey here's a guy who's on the up and coming and you know i, I need good original songs and you know, i should hitch my wagon to this guy because the other option is you know do cover songs of things that had maybe been hits 10 years prior and and he did a good bit of that too especially at warner brothers um yeah and i think funny enough the warner brothers which is the more big budget stuff the songs don't tend to be as strong as his independent stuff where he was relying on ray willis i 100 percent agree with that yeah yeah so i think one of his I think one of his frustrations is that Warner Brothers wasn't letting him pick the songs or have input on the arrangement, and he felt a little like, you know, he'd been recording these independent releases and having a lot more say in what the songs were and how they were put together, and suddenly that was, you know, taken away from him, and, you know, that might be a little a bit of racially motivated paternalism, or it might just be record label paternalism. I, I don't know, you know, what all the factors were in that, but you know, the the quality of the songs, even though his performances are good, the quality of the songs is not as high. So there's something to be said for the material in the in the independent recordings, you know, in general. And there's exceptions, you know, to to both that. There's some real highlights in the Warner Brothers stuff and, you know, a clunker or two and the independent things. But you know, generally speaking, I think he just thought like, well, I need to not just rely on, you know, retreading songs that have already been hits a decade prior. I need to come up with some stuff that's good and, and original, and it's hard to get good original stuff when the writers who are writing it are trying to pitch them to the bigger artists. Absolutely. Uh, brings me to another question I had uh, raised in in reading uh, about uh, Howdy. Was he much of a writer himself? Um, nothing on this collection was actually penned by him, him his own uh, hand. Yeah, I don't think so. I found a couple of references, you know, people mentioning like Howdy writing songs, but I don't think he ever recorded anything that he wrote. So to this to this day, I've never heard an original Howdy Glenn song. So maybe he was kind of messing around trying his hand at, at writing some original material. But uh, if he did, I've I've never heard any of it and, and he never released any of it. Well, fair enough. Did, does the proximity of of howdy's story to your own location i mean you're you're in inglewood at least part of the time does that did that have any appeal i mean you could possibly walk down the street and and find you know some of these places that howdy was i mean working at fire station a club i don't know yeah i mean i think that you know when i think about the fact that oh i saw this eight by ten of an artist kind of randomly and just sort of put it on the back burner of my mind to then finding out oh this guy was a Southern California uh, country artist, which is already something that has great interest for me. And then, oh, he was on the fire department of the city of Inglewood that I live in. And, you know, for folks that don't know, I mean, Inglewood is, is a, it's its own independent city within L.A. And, you know, of course, L.A. is a city, but L.A. County encompasses, you know, all kinds of, you know, Burbank, Culver City, Inglewood, all kinds of different cities that are considered part of the greater L.A. area. But, it's not like Inglewood's a huge metropolis or anything. So just the fact that he happened to be from the same place where I live, I mean, yeah, it's just kind of cool, you know, and it just kind of gave me that sense of, oh, I'm glad I happen to be the guy who has the uh, uh, the passion to tell this story because here I am, you know, in occupying some of the same areas that, that he did, you know, and so that's just kind of neat. You know, I don't know right. that it necessarily gave me any grand uh, insights or any you know leg up in terms of, of research <laughs> but you know it feels cool it just feels like sort of meant to be like oh you know uh, maybe maybe howdy's spirit is looking down and and chose me to to get the ball rolling on on telling his story you know that's, i don't know but it's just cool. kind of it's kind of cool <laughs> i totally agree i mean maybe you walk down the same sidewalk that you know howdy did with a an axe over his shoulder on the way to the fire station. I don't know. <laughs> right. I'm just right. spitballing here. Um, <laughs> I, I noticed um, you've 
you've you, you mentioned uh, a feeling of, of of satisfaction at the end of, of a project like this. What is what is the most satisfying part of sitting back and, and seeing this released to the world? You know, I think um, I, I I get a lot of satisfaction from writing historical uh, stuff about you know maybe things that people aren't as aware of as I wish they were, and and I have the joy of discovery too. You know, it's not like it's not like I've been sitting back for two decades going, oh man, I know all about. Howdy Glenn, and one of these days I'm going to tell the world about him. You know, I was discovering all the way up to the very last word that I wrote for these liner notes I was discovering, and and I love the discovery. I love finding out new stuff about musical history, and I love sharing that with people. So I find it really satisfying to to work on projects like this. Um, you know, I know this will come as a great shock, uh, but there's no money in these kind of things. <laughs> it's, it's not like anybody's uh, getting rich. I wasn't going to hit on that until <laughs> after we finished talking. <laughs> right. So there has to be a reason, you know, if someone gets into this type of work because they want money, then they're, they're a fool. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the payment comes with just the satisfaction of having done the historical work and, and having something, you know, and I, I kind of think, you know, this is not the sort of thing that's going to appeal to a mass audience. You know, uh, Howdy Glenn is not suddenly going to become a superstar. But if a small handful of people gain an appreciation for him, or or just think his story is cool and and listen to the music and enjoy it, um, that means a lot to me. And and I even imagine like if there's somebody researching this 50 years from now and they stumble across the liner notes that I wrote, and that's super helpful to them in their research then the thought of that is is gratifying. So I just like to contribute information to kind of the historical record that I feel like hopefully will still be around even when I'm gone and maybe one lonely researcher will find it in a box somewhere in some library and it'll mean the world to them and I'm satisfied with that. <laughs> that, that is an absolutely perfect way to round it out. Scott B. Bomar, uh, by his own definition, a cheerleader for stories that haven't been emphasized by the Nashville establishment, as you've been hearing. Mate, uh, just go ahead and, and tell people how they can get a hold of this uh, this wonderful new project. Coming out on January 20th, I can almost see Houston, the complete Howdy Glenn. Yeah, so uh, the digital version, which I mentioned, only has the independent recordings, can be found on Spotify or Apple or wherever folks get their music digitally. The uh, CD version should be available anywhere that CDs are sold, so check with your local record store if you're fortunate enough to have one of those. If they don't have it in stock, they can order it, or you can always get it on Amazon or wherever you buy your music online. And you can uh, also find out more about it at scottbbomar.com, which is my personal website. And uh, I hope folks will take the time to go and, and get this because I think it's highly worthwhile. I absolutely agree. And anybody who is listening to this uh, and who's a fan of, of traditional country music and, and classic country music as a whole, uh, I always like to say that it is worth supporting projects like this. They don't, uh, they don't happen for nothing. And uh, to support it is to make to make sure that this sort of thing keeps on happening. Whoever is going to be uncovered next or uh, profiled next or put in a box set next, this is the sort of thing we need to get behind. Scott B. Bomar, a driving force behind, I can almost see Houston, the complete Howdy Glenn, music historian, author. Scott, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, there it was, my chat with music historian and author Scott B. Bomar, whose magnificent new project on Howdy Glen, entitled I Can Almost See Houston, the complete Howdy Glen, is scheduled for release on January 20th, 2023 on Omnivore Records. Here at If That Ain't Country, we will be doing a full feature on it, but I wanted to wet your taste buds, as it were, with this chat first. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope that you'll tune in for the full episode on Howdy Glen, the black singing fireman from Inglewood, California.